something a little bit different on today's podcast as we are joined by a consultant radiologist who has pivoted into running a large venture capital firm that invests in early stage health tech companies. Dr. Fiona Pathwaja shares her journey and tells us how she switched from being a radiologist to running this large health tech VC company. We talk a bit about what VC does and how Fiona chooses what to invest in and also where she sees the future of health tech going. We also talk about how a personal setback empowered Fiona to learn about managing her own finances and she has some amazing inspirational tips for anybody who's struggling to make better financial decisions. Obviously, as always, the Medics Money podcast is for entertainment only and does not represent any form of financial advice. And just to say thank you to anybody who's shared our podcast with their friends. It's grown our audience really, really quickly, over 15,000 downloads a month now. And the reason why that's important is because it helps us to empower more of you to make better financial decisions, but it also helps us to attract amazing guests like Dr. Fiona Pathwaja. So thank you for everybody for sharing the podcast with your friends. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins, and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelo, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. On today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Fiona Patharaja. Hi, Fiona. How are you doing? Hi, Tommy. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on today. No, delighted to have you. It's taken a bit of scheduling to get you on here because we're both quite busy. But do you want to tell the Medics Money podcast listeners a bit about yourself and what you've been up to? Sure. So I am a radiologist by background and I work in the NHS. And then after leaving the NHS, I've set up Krista Galley Ventures, which is a VC venture capital firm investing in health technology companies across Europe. Awesome. That's quite a pivot or transition from being a consultant radiologist to doing VC. From consultant radiologist to VC with Christigali Ventures, some of our listeners might not be aware what venture capital is. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and how you made that transition from consultant radiologist to VC fund? Sure. So venture capitalists will invest money into startups in exchange for an ownership stake of that company. And they're doing this in the hope that the company will grow and that their ownership stake will also grow along with it. And the startup will use the money that the venture capital has invested to grow, hiring more people, doing product development, marketing, etc. And the VC will often invest like we do via a fund. And different VCs will invest in different parts of the life cycle of a company. So some will invest really early when the company is just an idea. And some will invest very late just when the company has thousands of employees and is about to sort of exit. And I suppose the first part of your question, how did I make that transition or why? I think I've always had this bigger interest in healthcare. I liked being a doctor, but I was always trying to look above just the one-to-one interactions that you have day-to-day as a young doctor. And I took some risks early on to try and get a wider understanding of healthcare. I took a year out and worked as a management consultant. I had two years out and worked in government where I was a clinical advisor to Sir Bruce Keogh, who was the NHS medical director at the time. And I realized, you know, I really want to make change here. And I tried to do this in hospital in various sort of little and big ways and realized it's really challenging to make impactful change quickly or at pace in hospital medicine. 
And I finished training in radiology. And at the same time, I was doing finishing up an MBA at London Business School. And going there really changed my mindset. And I had a mentor coach there who said, you know, there's two types of organizations in the world generally. Things like DNHS, which are essentially like an army where there's thousands of people and you can make a small amount of change or more nimble organizations, which are more like the SAS, where you can make bigger changes, but that, you know, you don't have that hierarchy and the power in the same way. And I realized I want to work somewhere that's nimble and where actually you can make change quickly. So I then decided to use the network I had from the MBA to move into venture capital. Awesome. I mean, that is just an amazing transformation and really inspirational for a lot of doctors that are listening to this. You mentioned the MBA, which is kind of a controversial topic because some people say you need to do an MBA. Some people say you don't need to do an MBA. What's your thoughts on if somebody's listening to this and they want to be you, should they do an MBA or not? Because we get this all the time and I've got no idea because I don't have an MBA. I really don't think you need an MBA, definitely. I think you can definitely move into venture capital or into health tech, into a startup without having that background. I actually did it because I wanted a formal education around finances because my idea had actually been to be a CEO of a hospital trust in the NHS. And I figured actually I should probably go and get some finance skills. And I did gain that. But what I really gained from the MBA was a network. And, you know, in my day-to-day life in the NHS, I was meeting a lot of people who are like me, you know, people like you, people who are my friends who are sort of consultant radiologists or whatever physicians. And actually, on the MBA, the people I met were business leaders, policy leaders, billionaires, people who would just not come into my day-to-day, I guess, life if I hadn't have done the MBA. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you basically just exposed yourself to a completely different cohort of people that weren't doctors, but had all these additional skills. And you just kind of picked up all of that information. And that's a common thing that lots of people who have done an MBA say is that you just build an amazing network of people that you know were obviously on the course with you as well. That is an amazing transformation. You're looking at investing in something. You know, what do you invest in and how do you decide what to invest in without giving away all of your trade secrets? I suppose a bit of context. Crystal Galley Ventures is a $65 million health tech fund. We invest at the earliest stage of in the life cycle of a company, which in our world is called sort of seed and series A. And we put in up to £500,000 at the very early companies and then up to £3 million at the later stages. And we tend to invest across Europe and we're expanding a little bit to invest in the US as well. In terms of what we're investing in, we invest in startups who are solving difficult health problems using technology. And we invest in three key areas, deep tech, which is sort of artificial intelligence and deep learning, digital health and personalized medicine. So to give you a little flavor from our portfolio of companies, we have Contextflow in Austria, who are helping radiologists to prioritize their workflow using AI. We have Kalea in Germany, who are building an online marketplace for pregnant women and midwives to bring them online together. And then we have Mendelian in the UK, who are using artificial intelligence on the primary care GP patient records to try and help GPs predict which patients might end up getting diagnosed with a rare disease. It's quite a broad spectrum, but everybody's using technology to try and make healthcare better. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in that GP one, being a GP myself. But, you know, you mentioned AI a lot, and it's quite a hot topic at the moment. Do you, presumably, you see AI as being a big part of the future of medicine? And if so, what do you think are the big gain areas? Because I understand AI in radiology, that would work really well, because I read Hannah Fry's book, Hello World. I recommend that for like a beginner's guide. 
But her argument is that AI will be amazingly useful for things where there's a defined outcome and therefore the AI can learn that this chest x-ray shows, you know, a lung cancer, for example. But as a GP, there's not really that many often defined incomes. You know, Doris might come and see me and she could be suffering from dizziness and it could be anything from she's having some kind of arrhythmia, she's got diabetes, or it could simply be the anniversary of her husband passing away or something like that. And we might never know exactly what it is. It might just get better on its own. So this is a really long rambling way of saying, where's AI going to help? Is it more like radiology kind of things? Or do you think it could help me as a GP? I think it's definitely still early days in this. And as a VC, I'm investing in the future. And I definitely think AI in healthcare is a very exciting place and that it's going to grow and grow massively. Yes, you're right. The thesis of places like radiology or pathology, where it's very pattern recognition based in some cases, actually, that's an easy place to start because, as you say, there's defined outcomes. It's easy or easy in inverted commas for the AI to start working on knee x-rays, or very simple pathology slides. But in those areas, demand is ever increasing. We want in more and more imaging. There's less, there's fewer and fewer sort of radiologists and pathologists out there globally. I don't see a way that those two specialties are going to be improved without the use of technology. So that's a definite thing. The second thing is in GP and in other areas, presumably there are areas AI could help in terms of, for example, the one I mentioned, Mendelian. They're working not at the level of the individual GP, but at the level of looking at the electronic patient record and saying to a GP practice, we have 10 patients, we've identified 10 patients who might be at risk of getting a rare disease. They've had 20 unexplained visits to healthcare professionals, and they're part of this diagnostic odyssey. And you know, you as a GP may have missed that. You may think it, but you haven't sort of necessarily, that's not your top priority on the day. So I think there is scope, but it is early days. So I don't want to say it's a, it's a solution for everything because it isn't. Yeah, I think as well, the strength that we have in GP is that although our outcomes aren't as defined as in pathology or radiology, our data is 100% electronic. We do exactly. not use paper. And so that has obviously got a lot of powerful potential because I understand that there are still hospitals, uh, not UCLH, but they use paper still. Okay. I mean, that's super interesting there. When I'm listening to this, or I had James Somaru, who I think is a mutual friend of ours on the podcast, and we hear about all of these amazing things. And then a junior doctor in the NHS goes onto their ward and the computer takes 15 minutes to run an update. And they're still using a piece of paper to keep their list. Is there a danger that the NHS will get left behind in a lot of this because of the limitations, shall we say, of the day-to-day resources? Because there's a bit of a mismatch between what you're talking about, which sounds amazingly useful, and then the reality for most junior doctors is standing in front of the donut of doom, just waiting for the computer, which is really old, to do something so that they can use it. Yeah, and I appreciate what you're saying. I have been there too, you know, as a young doctor sending faxes to various people. But I think that actually the NHS is trying its best. They've got NHS X, which is deploying hundreds of millions of pounds into trying to get technology embedded within the NHS. And I think, as I understand it, they're trying to help both the startups and the clinicians to work together to find solutions. The thing about Internet Explorer and all of these things is always rumbling on in the background. I don't have a solution for that. I think that you know, needs to be tackled inside the NHS. Um, but I also think that, you know, 50 years ago, some of the things I was doing as a radiologist in 2018 couldn't have been even dreamt about. We were doing crazy biopsies. We were doing, you know, all sorts of high-end technology scans. And actually, we couldn't have dreamt about that 50 years ago. So I think we will progress. I don't think the NHS is going to be left behind. 
But at the same time, I don't think it's necessarily going to be the first adopter into some of these cutting edge technologies either. Yeah, that's good to know. Let's just sort of think about where you know, you're investing at mainly early stage, which early basically means risky, could go to the moon, could go to nothing. Hmm. So how do you go about evaluating whether something's a good idea, a bad idea, a good investment or a bad investment? Because yeah, early stage means risky to me, or have I got that wrong? No, it's definitely right. Early stage is risky. And one of the things that people, you know, if you're angel investing in early stage companies as an individual investor, people say it is extremely high risk. It's capital at risk. You can lose it all, right? But in terms of what we're looking for, essentially it's two things, the quality of the idea and the quality of the team. And then also, is there a big market for this? So I sort of approach it by looking at, is this really solving a real clinical problem? You know, is this an actual problem, firstly, to doctors, to patients? What is the background of the founding team? What's their skill set? Why is this problem that they're trying to solve so important to them? And do the founders, importantly, do they get healthcare? Because it's you know a complex regulated environment, as you know, you can't just go out there and do something quickly. Do the founders really understand the challenges of healthcare? And do they have they made the effort? If they're not a clinical founder in there, have they made the effort to engage all the key stakeholders? Do they know what the doctor's pathway, the patient's pathway is around this? And the best founders really get this, actually. One of my best founders, I would say, is Neil Daly from Skin Analytics, which is an AI company on working to diagnose skin cancer. And he spent literally years trying to understand the dermatology pathways, you know, between GPs and patients and nurse specialists and dermatologists. Yeah. And I guess neatly leading on from what you're saying there, uh, I think I know the answer to this, but do you think being a consultant radiologist, a fully trained doctor, helps you to invest in this market? And if so, why? Obviously, it helps me to understand the context better. And it helps me to understand, you know, this will work in hospital, it's likely to work in hospital, it's likely to work in a GP practice. Whereas actually people from a more financial background have never even perhaps even been, you know, really into a hospital unless they're themselves or visiting sort of a friend or family. So I think that is important. But then also I have people who I work with who bring a very different aspect, the financial aspect of it, which actually, you know, it challenges me to say, I'm very much very optimistic and enthusiastic about the future of healthcare. But they're actually bringing me back to is this going to sell? Who is going to buy this product? What is the revenue on this? So I think you need a balance in your team here. Yeah, definitely. I think team is the key word there. Okay, so that is an amazing journey. It's an amazing career that you've created for yourself. And it's not a very common career. You've created that purely for yourself. I could talk about this all day with you, but that is not the real reason that you wanted to come on the Medics Money podcast, is it? So do you want to tell our listeners the real reason that you wanted to come on today? Because I think it's really important. Yeah. So I really wanted to talk about, I guess, gender parity in finance and sort of financial literacy for women. I had a divorce several years ago, and that helped me to refocus my priorities and understand what I was doing around finances. And actually, previously, I had left pretty much everything to do with finances to my then husband. And I know that I'm not alone in this. There's so many women in medicine. I will bet you my whole fund that actually not all of them are out there taking charge of what's happening in money and personal finances for themselves or for their household. At the time, I read a story of this lady called Aisha van der Peer, who worked in finance and her husband was a high earner. And her husband then died and she realized she has no idea what's going on in her personal finances. I realized through my own journey that financial literacy helps you to be empowered and independent and then also resilient in the face of tragedy, whether it's divorce or the death of your spouse. 
So that's what I wanted to come on to talk about. And I've got, you know, a few things I wanted to mention to women who might be listening here. Please do. Yeah, definitely. So I think firstly, investing isn't just for men. And one of the things I learned from the MBA is that men will talk a lot about just, you know, over drinks in the bar, they'd be like, oh, the Tesla stock, stock price is this. This is what's happening with this market. This is what's happening in the emerging markets. And women just don't talk about that as much. And so on the MBA, I made sort of a female group of friends and tried to ask them more about, you know, what are you investing in? What are you doing? So just talking to people and building a network, I think is really important. And then also there's lots of online resources. So I obviously learned a bit about finance on the MBA, got a formal financial education of sorts from the MBA. And I started reading, there's this really interesting column in Refinery29, I think it's called Money Diaries, where women talk about what they spend, save and invest in. And it's just crazy because there are people who are earning £13,000. There's people who are earning £300,000. And it's really interesting to see how these women are doing things differently. And then I've come across, and I'm quite passionate about it, this community online. I've joined a community called Female Invest. And it's an amazing platform with a community of 100,000 women there. And Female Invest are based in Denmark, but they're operating globally. And they're empowering and educating women to close this gender gap by helping them to understand. You know, what are stocks? What are ETFs? What are bonds? And I think that that is really important. And today, you know, I am now fortunate enough to be able to say I might buy a six-figure Hermes Birkin handbag. But now, instead of just thinking, okay, this is a good thing, nice thing to buy, I'm thinking, do I spend that six figures on that handbag? Or do I invest them into a startup, into stocks, or into a fund where I could be a limited partner in somebody else's fund? And that, I think, is so important. And I think that, you know, it provides me with independence and resilience, which I definitely didn't have, you know, five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Medics Money, we started to empower doctors to make better financial decisions. And the way that you can empower yourself is just by getting educated. And, you know, as doctors, you are smart people by definition. Unfortunately, being smart as a doctor doesn't always correlate well to financial literacy, but you can definitely learn it. And once you learn it, you're empowered, whether you're female or male. And I think that disparity is definitely, as you say, there's a big disparity between the sexes there, which hopefully we're addressing uh, with what we're doing. But you've obviously been on quite a difficult journey there. For people that are listening, give us your sort of biggest wins or your biggest mistakes and how other people listening to podcasts can learn from those, you know, with regards to the financial education that you gave yourself. I don't really want to start talking about wins or losses per se. I think it's more important to say it's an understanding of it. So if you do make you know, investment on a stock that you know, you've ended up losing money on, you're at least taking a risk. So I would say work out your budget, work within your means and take moderate risk, but track yourself as well. You know, sort of, instead of just say, I'm spending all this money on one stock, you start small, take your time and take the time to reflect on the decisions you've made as you go forward in your investing sort of life. Yeah, absolutely. There's loads of resources out there that can help you now, which is a great thing about, you know, there's loads of information on YouTube and obviously the Medics Money podcast, et cetera, and the links that you mentioned. I think that's really inspirational for a lot of people, that journey. Changing track slightly, another thing that I noticed you do recently was you made two fairly large donations, one to Chris Day. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that, why you did that? And should we talk about that, even though it's a little bit controversial? One of the beautiful things about now not being in the NHS is that I don't need to be worried about what I say, you know, about my views of about whistleblowers and things like this, because I know that there, as you say, it is controversial and people, you know, feel worried about backing Chris Day and other whistleblowers. So 
as I said, money is about independence. And I spent £30,000 backing two whistleblowers, Chris Day and Claire Connolly, who is, she was a pediatric trainee before she essentially lost her job and now is trying to fight in court about this. This actually comes from another personal experience where actually I was a young radiologist at UCLA. I spent many times talking about a rotor issue, which, you know, it just wasn't right. And I kept complaining about it and nothing happened. And part of the rotor was public and I didn't like it. And I complained many times, nothing happened. I knew I was in the right. It shouldn't be on a public site. And actually, when I then many years later in 2021, I found that this was still going on. And I emailed into UCLH to say, by the way, this is happening. And of course, nobody replies to this, but they fixed it within sort of less than, you know, 18 hours, which made me realize, gosh, you know, young doctors just aren't listened to because I said the same thing for seven years. No one did anything. Suddenly I'm sending it outside (laughs) as a member of the public and things are very different. Actually, at the same time, I wrote to the CEO and he said, you know, this isn't a priority at the moment. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And essentially, you know, we hope that this is the, your email is the end of it. And I actually thought, you know what, actually, no, because this is important. And the Chris Day thing came because actually I hired a legal team to raise the issue with UCLH and, I, and they sorted that out for me. And then I started reading more and more into how young doctors are infantilized or not treated well. And you know, across the NHS. And I came across Chris Day and Claire Connolly. And I just thought, you know what, this is really backing the underdog. These people don't have money to hire QCs and top-notch lawyers, and they deserve help. And that is simply the reason, because I just thought I have not to say a whistleblower here, but I can see the, the struggle and the challenge that they're facing. And I thought it's a really important thing. And, and if you have money and you can't give it to philanthropic causes that are important to you, then sort of there's no point in having it really. I mean, I love it. I think all doctors need to be aware of what's going on with Chris Day and Claire Connolly. Definitely read up on that. And like you say, money doesn't give you happiness, but it does give you choices. And you've chosen to use that money in that way. And that is a really amazing thing to do. Chris and Claire will be very grateful for that. Thank you so much for your time today. Your story is going to inspire so many people. If people are liking what they hear or want to find out more about Chris Degali, where's the best place to find you, contact you and learn about you? The Christogalli website is www.christogalli.com and you can contact me on Twitter. It's at Dr. Underscore Fiona. I also listened to your podcast, which I really enjoyed. And hopefully you'll be doing some more episodes on that as well. It's called The Health Tech VC. Season two is coming up next month. Definitely recommend listening to that. And I'm excited that another season is coming. Thank you so much for your time today, Fiona. And thanks for coming on the Medics Money podcast. Thank you very much, Tommy. Bye.